Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now, in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Well, I want to have a heart-to-heart with you. We do this now and then. I've been talking for some time about the growing anti-Semitism, including in this country, and in our politics, and in our media. The vast majority of the American people want none of this, like you. None of this. But there are elements in our society, and they each actually have representation in Congress, who are thoroughly anti-Semitic. They're dripping with it. It's so bad that the House of Representatives, controlled by the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi, refused to propose, let alone adopt, a resolution condemning Ilian Omar but she's not the only one Talib is another one AOC is another one Ellison another one another what? anti-Semites Farrakhan is constantly hovering over the Democrat Party Sharpton The candidates on the Democrat side for president all run up to Sharpton to get his blessing, despite his his past. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this, particularly the New York Times. We know what took place at that temple, at that Chabad. We'll play a little bit of this outstanding Rabbi Goldstein. Israel Goldstein a little bit later the heroes there the heroes including the uh, the vet and including the uh, the off-duty border patrol for uh, individual these are people who uh, who immediately acted as did this poor woman who jumped in front of the rabbi and was killed as a result of her heroism. This is a 19-year-old neo-Nazi. Now, when I get my threats, it's almost always from the neo-Nazis and the Klansmen. Almost always. And if the media were capable of truth, and today they simply are not, they would tell you how much they hate Donald Trump. Every one of their manifestos, whether it's the, the animal in Pittsburgh or the animal outside of San Diego this time, they all make it clear that they hate Trump. 
The animal from Australia that murdered all those Muslims. Same thing. Same thing. I don't normally do this, but I found a very, very compelling piece at frontpagemagazine.com by Daniel Greenfield. And he says in part, John T. Ernest, this is the, the scumbag, came to a small synagogue in small California city of 50,000 with a rifle and big dreams of killing Jews. In a manifesto posted on an 8chan, he boasted, I would die a thousand times. It turns out he's a putrid little coward, but let's go on. The neo-Nazi wannabe killer listed Adolf Hitler as his inspiration. Quote, my act will inspire others to take a stand as well, he wrote in his manifesto. And when this revolution starts gaining traction, if I am not killed, I expect to be freed from prison and continue the fight. Inside, an elderly rabbi, a 60-year-old woman, a 9-year-old girl, and other Jewish worshippers celebrating the final day of Passover showed him the true meaning of courage. The older congregants in the sanctuary of Shabbat of Poway, the city's sole Orthodox Jewish synagogue, were reciting Yizkor, the prayer for deceased loved ones, an occasion that can summon even the most secular Jew to the synagogue, while the younger children were playing in the synagogue's hall. Had Ernest opened fire in the sanctuary, many of the congregants asking the Lord to embrace their parents and grandparents and unite their souls with those of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all their forefathers would have joined them in death. But instead, the neo-Nazi was drawn after the rabbi and the congregation's children who embodied the innocence and goodness he was driven to destroy. The neo-Nazi stopped in the lobby and opened fire on Rabbi Goldstein and the children. The rabbi rushed to get the children out of the hall. He was wounded and lost his right index finger, but kept saving the children. Lori Gilbert Kay, a 60-year-old longtime congregant, jumped in to stop a bullet meant for the rabbi and was killed. Her husband, a doctor, would fight to keep her alive. And it turns out, as he was giving her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, he realized it was his wife. And he fainted. Olmog Peretz, an Israeli tourist who had faced Islamic terror at home, grabbed more children and rushed them to safety. He was shot in the leg, but that didn't stop him. He recalled being under fire in Israel. His brother-in-law, Israel Dahan, flipped over a table to shield the children. His daughter, nine-year-old Noya Dahan, was hit in the leg. But the nine-year-old girl later insisted on sharing a photo of herself smiling from the hospital. Shimon Abdabul, an Israeli grandpa visiting his family, covered his grandson with his body. The neo-Nazi had come in vowing to kill as many Jews as he could. He had boasted of his bravery and his willingness to die. Fear is the only thing holding you back, he bragged. But in the face of their courage, he faltered. His rifle jammed. An Iraq war vet congregant rushed at him, and he ran for it. The neo-Nazi had bought a soundtrack, including the Pokemon theme song and a track from a hollow video game, to inspire him. His intended victims had brought their faith in God. He'd expected to break them. Instead, their determination broke him. An off-duty border patrol agent, who was a member of the congregation, fired at him as, as he ran. The shots missed the killer, but struck his car. Apparently, four bullets hit the car. 
Well, the congregants waited for the police. Rabbi Goldstein, his bloody fingers wrapped in a, a prayer shawl, delivered a sermon encouraging a congregants to be brave. The neo-Nazi, afraid that he might be shot by police, called 911, left the car, raised his hands, and surrendered. The attack on Chabad, about Bowway, did not happen in a vacuum. The Hasidic Jewish group has been a mecca for anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, including claims that they served as the interface between Putin and Trump. That claim didn't appear in some fringe publication, but in the popular Politico article. Politico. The neo-Nazis' manifesto has expressed hatred not just for Jews, but for Trump as, quote, Zionist Jew-loving, unquote. Those were the same sentiments featured in an anti-Semitic cartoon in the New York Times of President Trump wearing a Jewish skullcap and being led around by a long-nosed dog with Prime Minister Netanyahu's face in another convergence of alt-left and alt-right anti-Semitism. The quiet city where a neo-Nazi gunman opened fire is over 2,700 miles away from the headquarters of the New York Times and Politico. But anti-Semitic conspiracy theories have a ubiquitous appeal for socialist fanatics, whether their role model is Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin. The events, thousands of miles apart, showed how compelling anti-Semitism is for the urban newspaper editor and the deranged thug for their shared dreams of racial war that will fracture America into the broken horror of their utopia. To Politico and to the gunman, a small synagogue in a small city was an outpost of the hidden empire of the Jewish conspiracy. To the alt-left media, a Chabad rabbi might be the hidden link between Republicans and Moscow. To alt-writers like Ernest, it was a chain in a conspiracy of usury and war. To the New York Times, Politico, and the neo-Nazi killer, President Trump was just a dupe of the Jews. In a fractured society, Anti-Semitism is a language shared by a neo-Nazi like John Ernest and an Islamist like Representative Omar and the leftists in the mainstream media. Jewish conspiracy theories are ancient but are still alive by diverse fanatics who use them to make sense of a chaotic multicultural landscape. The world of the alt-left and the alt-right of Islamists, Nazis, and Marxists makes so much sense if you assume that a tiny minority of a few million can be blamed from everything that stands in their way. The New York Times wants people to believe that there would be peace in the Middle East if it weren't for the Jews. Politico wanted its readers to believe that Trump would be in jail if it weren't for the Jews. And John Ernest believed that he would have a girlfriend and a satisfying life if it weren't for the Jews. Why the Jews? John Ernest's rannings gave us part of the answer. The 19-year-old who'd spent his life playing video games, wanted to be a hero. But he didn't want to join the military or the police. Nor did he want to follow through on becoming a nursing student and doing the hard work of taking care of people. Instead, he loaded up a video game soundtrack and went after the easiest and softest target in the area. The vast conspiracy theories about the Jews would allow him to play hero by opening fire with a rifle on elderly congregants and children. He imagined that this act of terror would turn inspire others. But the heroism of anti-Semitism isn't just celebrated on 8chan. Every media attack on Israel is treated as an act of courage. 
after three generations of ceaselessly attacking Israel. The New York Times recently ran an op-ed titled, Time to Break the Silence on Palestine. Media critics of Israel claim they're a beleaguered minority, constantly being silenced and muzzled, when theirs are the only voices we hear from anymore. Like Ernest, they too want to be heroes. Takes no courage to shoot elderly people with a gun or to run another anti-Semitic hit piece against people who are almost as unarmed. But such is the courage that the alt-left and the alt-right celebrate. Anyone can be an anti-Semite. The material is familiar and simple. And so anyone could be a hero. Anti-Semitism is the last refuge of cowards. It's the laziest hatred that requires the least creativity. The alt-left revived anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. The alt-right dressed it up in hipster irony in the video game references. But all they've done is slap a little fresh paint on a beat-up old car. John Ernst was a coward, not just because he ran when his weapon jammed and he feared facing down the grandparents and parents of the children he just tried to murder without a gun in his hand. He was a coward because he blamed his problem on the oldest, worn-out bigotry on the books. Instead of finding the courage to live a meaningful life, he took away his own options with a murderous fantasy. But the even bigger cowards are to be found in an alt-right internet culture that egged him on for laughs. His true counterparts are the Islamic terrorists who, instead of building working societies, plot acts of mass murder in revenge for the historical conspiracy theories they blame for everything. A meaningful life is made up of bravery built on vulnerability. Victimhood culture tells its victims that their vulnerability is a crime committed against them by a conspiracy of Jews, infidels, or racists that must be met with grievance and violence. Like Ernest, they believe that they are doomed. Their only salvation can come from destroying the lives of others. And it goes on, talks about the Christians who were slaughtered and the Muslims who were slaughtered in New Zealand as well. But we're going to circle back to the New York Times. A cartoon they ran on Friday. They actually ran two cartoons. You've only really been told about one. Two incredibly sickening cartoons. And then if you'll stick with me, and I ask for your forbearance, I want to dig deep into the history of the New York Times with you. I took months researching it. What this newspaper really is. And then you have this White House Correspondents' Dinner. You have these phony journalists telling you they fear this president they fear this president as a result of this president you know they've had threats as a result of this president they've had threats so we'll tie it all together I'll be right back have you ever wished you knew more about how politics and our constitution work Could you explain the key differences between capitalism and socialism? Wish you knew more about American history? Well, I have good news for you. It's not too late to learn no matter how busy you are or how long it's been since you've been in college or high school. And you can do it for free. 
because my friends at Hillsdale College as a service to our country have free online courses that provide a taste of the core curriculum that every Hillsdale College student takes, the core that teaches us how to think critically and act virtuously, and it can help you too. Getting started is very simple. Just sign up for one or more of Hillsdale's most popular online courses for free, and you can learn whenever you like. Visit online.hillsdale.edu right now. That's online.hillsdale.edu. Join right now, and you'll be on your way to a rich, meaningful education. Again, that's online.hillsdale.edu. The New York Times is the quarterback of the media. It's the ringleader. It's the mob boss. What I want to do, I only have about a minute and a half in this segment, is after the bottom of the hour, I want to discuss with you their cartoon. There's actually two of them. They're cartoons. And then I want to tell you about the real New York Times. The real New York Times. We've talked about it a little bit before. I refer to it now and then. And I want you to keep something else in mind. How little coverage that New York Times cartoon, both cartoons, have received. Quick hits and gone. They keep bringing up Charlottesville with respect to this president. They keep lying about what he said. The Daily Beast recently lied about my interview with him. Uh, we have a Washington Post buffoon who says the president has lied now 10,000 times. Not 9,712 times, not 6,914, 10,000 times. They just round it off. The Washington Compost. While they spoon-feed us lies and propaganda and spin day in and day out because they think you're stupid. And they pretend that they're, they're the freedom of the press. No, they're not. Who says? But there's a lot to discuss here, and there's a lot to discuss beyond this, too, and we'll get to it. We've got a lot to do today, but the, the New York Times has a particular obsession, particular obsession with anti-Semitism, Jews, and Israel. You might say, well, wait a minute, they're owned by Jews. Well, the current owner, the great-great-grandson of the original owner, he's half Jew, and I think he's half Lutheran or half Episcopal. It doesn't really matter. Jew or non-Jew. There are Catholics who hate Catholics. There are Jews who hate Jews, and on down the line. But there's a particular obsession with the New York Times, and it's very interesting how the vast mass media has given the New York Times a pass for a hundred years. I'll be right back. Since its founding in 1844, Hillsdale College has provided students with sound learning of the kind essential to preserving our civil and religious liberty. Now, I want to tell you about Imprimus, the free monthly speech digest of Hillsdale College. Imprimus is dedicated to educating citizens and promoting civil and religious liberty by covering important cultural, economic, political, and educational issues. First published in 1972, Imprimus is one of America's most widely read publications in support of liberty. With more subscribers, 3.9 million, than the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And recent Imprimus publications have addressed issues like free speech, the regulation of big tech, mental illness, and the American medical insurance system. 
And because America's founding principles are so important, Hillsdale offers Primus absolutely free of charge to anyone who requests it. That's right. You can subscribe to Primus for free. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to visit imprimus.hillsdale.edu for your free subscription. That's Imprimus, I-M-P-R-I-M-I-S dot Hillsdale dot E-D-U. Welcome to Hillsdale. The Mark Levin Show, where we create the talking points. Call in now, 877-381-3811. I want to encourage you to stay here. You're going to hear some things, many of you for the first time, that are going to be absolutely shocking. From chapter 6, An Unfreedom of the Press, and it is this chapter that causes me to tell you, if you're going to order my book, please pre-order it immediately, because the New York Times is going to do everything possible to keep me from being number one on its list. And there's no better response than making sure they have to put us number one on their list. Because this chapter six is entitled, The New York Times Betrays Millions. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but here's part of it. Reporting about the Holocaust, where, among other things, journalistic groupthink and other professional malpractices, suppression and outright self-censorship, came together to create a monumental betrayal of millions of European Jews and the American public. And in what was the greatest example of American media recklessness and deceit ever perpetrated by the press. In 1984, Dr. David Wyman, in his book, The Abandonment of the Jews, explained that one reason ordinary Americans were not more responsive to the plight of European Jews during the Holocaust was that very many, probably a majority, were unaware of Hitler's extermination program until well into 1944 or later. The information was not, only, was not readily available to the public because the mass media treated the systematic murder of millions of Jews as though it were minor news. Yet on November 24, 1942, unambiguous evidence of the Nazis' ongoing extermination of European Jews was made publicly available but was largely ignored by the media. In fact, newly released documents prove that the Allied powers knew firsthand of the mass murder of Jews by December 1942. Incredible. In the United States, Wyman asserted, two or three clear statements from Franklin Roosevelt would have moved this news into public view and kept it there for some time. But the president was not so inclined, nor did Washington reporters press him. In retrospect, it seems almost unbelievable that in Roosevelt's press conferences normally held twice a week, not one word was spoken about the mass killing of European Jews until almost a year later. The president had nothing to say to reporters on the matter, and no correspondent asked him about it. Roosevelt and his State Department, which was populated with several individuals who were, at a minimum, indifferent to the fate of the European Jews, and others who were flat-out anti-Semites, did not want to draw attention to the Holocaust. Roosevelt was assisted in this policy by the American press. For most of the war, news outlets and journalists censored information, censored information about the ongoing extermination of Jews, or hid the information 
infrequent and in, in infrequent and sporadic reports among voluminous other news stories. He writes, most newspapers printed very little about the, uh, the Holocaust, says Wyman, even though extensive information of it eventually reached their desks from news services like AP, UP, and others, and from their own correspondence. So surely the New York Times, with its wide reach, resources, access to foreign sources of information, reputation as the foremost newspaper in the country, large Jewish readership and its Jewish ownership, would do everything possible to investigate and disclose the horrors of Jewish genocide, right? But the opposite was true. In his book, Wyman explained, the Times, Jewish-owned but anxious not to be seen as Jewish-oriented, was the premier American newspaper of the era. It printed a substantial amount of information on Holocaust-related events, but almost always buried it on the inner pages. And the Washington Post, the Jewish-owned Washington Post, printed a few editorials advocating rescue, but only infrequently carried news reports on the European Jewish situation. The other Washington newspapers provided similarly limited information on the mass murder of European Jewry. And most of the other press... Outside New York and Washington, press coverage was even thinner. All major newspapers carried some Holocaust-related news, but it appeared infrequently and almost always in small items located on inside pages. American mass circulation magazines all but ignored the Holocaust. Radio coverage of the Holocaust was sparse. Emory University professor Deborah Lipsta, in her book Beyond Belief, so the media's self-censorship during the Holocaust as a broadly institutional problem. She wrote, quote, The press bears a great measure of responsibility for the public skepticism and ignorance of the scope of the wartime tragedy, the Nazi mass murder of Jews. The public's doubts were strengthened and possibly even created by the manner in which the media told the story. If the press did not help plant the seeds of doubt in readers' minds, it did little to eradicate them. During the war, journalists frequently said that the news of deportations and execution did not come from eyewitnesses who could personally confirm what had happened, and they as journalists were obliged to treat it skeptically. This explanation is faulty, because much of the information came from German statements, broadcasts, and newspapers. If anything, these sources would have been inclined to deny, not verify the news. Neutral sources also affirmed the reliability of reports, Moreover, even when the press did encounter witnesses, it often dismissed what they had to say because they were not considered reliable or impartial. Now, by 42, writes Lipson, the Nazi threat to exterminate the Jews should have been understood as a literal one. There was little reason in light of the abundance of evidence to deny that multitudes were being murdered as part of a planned program of annihilation. But despite all the details, there was a feeling among some correspondents New York Times reporter Bill Lawrence, most prominent among them, that the reports that Hitler and his followers had conducted a systematic extermination campaign were untrue. The New York Times' Lawrence did not doubt that Hitler had, quote, treated the Jews badly, forcing many of them to flee to the sanctuaries of the West. But even in October 1943, ten months after the Allied declaration confirming the Nazi policy of exterminating the Jews, he could not believe that the Nazis had murdered millions of Jews, Slavs, Gypsies, and those who might be mentally retarded. Lipstadt's research also found that for much of the war, 
The Roosevelt administration whitewashed or de-emphasized the Nazi eradication of Jews. And the mass media were compliant, regurgitating the government's propaganda or suppressing the evidence. Lipset explained that the Office of War Information, working in tandem with the Roosevelt administration, tried to severely limit any public attention paid to the mass murder of Jews. Despite the fact that the final solution was the prime illustration of the enemy's strategy and principles, the Office of War Information wanted it to be avoided by news agencies and not mentioned in war propaganda. And the press mirrored the official policy of omitting mention of Jews or incorporating them into the general suffering faced by many other national groups. Shockingly, I'm skipping around on the chapter from Unfreedom of the Press. I wasn't going to read this. I was going to wait for it to come out, but it's propitious now. Shockingly, the media's cover-up continued nearly up to the war's conclusion. Lipset wrote, Lipstadt wrote that even when the war had virtually ended and the death camps were being liberated, reporters continued to incorporate the fate of the Jews into that of all other national groups that had been incarcerated and murdered at the camps for the purpose of minimizing the targeted atrocities against the Jews and Hitler's final solution. And taking direct aim at the New York Times, Professor Laura Leff of Northwestern University, formerly a journalist, meticulously scrutinized not only the role of the media generally during the Holocaust, but the New York Times in particular. She has written extensively about how the New York Times failed in its coverage of the fate of European Jews from 1939 to 1945. In her book, Buried by the Times, she asks... What was it about prevailing press standards and policies and personalities at the Times that led the nation's most important newspaper to discount one of the century's most important news stories? The Times was unique in the comprehensiveness of its coverage and the extent of its influence among American opinion makers. Because of its longtime commitment to international affairs and its willingness to sacrifice advertising rather than articles in the face of a newsprint crunch, and its substantial Jewish readership, the Times was able to obtain and publish more news than other mainstream newspapers. The way the Times published that news also had a disproportionate impact on both policymakers and fellow journalists who considered it the newspaper of record, that the Times was owned by Jews of German ancestry who would seemingly be more sensitive to the plight of the European brethren further magnified the Times' critical role in shaping contemporaneous coverage of the Holocaust. Left then makes this damning disclosure. The Times' judgment that the murder of millions of Jews was a relatively unimportant story reverberated among other journalists trying to assess the news, among Jewish groups trying to arouse public opinion, and among government leaders trying to decide on an American response. The Times publisher. Is this boring everybody, Mr. Producer? I hope not. The Times publisher, Arthur Hayes Sulzberger, intentionally and repeatedly buried news about the Holocaust deep within his paper or ignored it altogether. Left writes, quote, although the war was the dominant news, it need not have been and was not the only front page news. The New York Times printed between 12 and 15 front-page stories every day. Fewer than half of these typically concern the war. 
The Times' first story on the Nazi extermination campaign, which described it as the gravest mass slaughter in history, appeared on page 5, tacked onto the bottom of a column of stories. Yet the deaths of other civilians, often fewer than 100, regularly appeared on the front page. Sulzberger's personal philosophical views of Judaism also played a major role in his callous disengagement from the plight of the European Jews. You wonder why. Here's why. In the case of Sulzberger, writes Left, concerns about special pleading and dual loyalties were not purely a pragmatic calculation. They also reflected a deeply felt religious and philosophical belief that made Sulzberger resistant to changing his views in light of changing circumstances. Being Jewish was solely a religious, not a racial or ethnic orientation, he maintained, that carried with it no special obligation to help fellow Jews. As anti-Semitism intensified in Germany, and to a lesser extent in America, he protested a bit too vigorously, perhaps, that Jews were just like any other citizen. They should not be persecuted as Jews, but they should not be rescued as Jews either. In fact, American Jews who helped other Jews because they were Jews threatened to undercut their position as Americans, Sulzberger believed. The Times publisher thus was philosophically, philosophically opposed to emphasizing the Holocaust, which Hitler had no problem emphasizing. Incredibly, Sulzberger's personal dislike of certain Jewish leaders in opposition to their efforts to establish a Jewish state in the original Jewish homeland further soured him and hence the Times coverage of the Holocaust. Left wrote that Sulzberger's involvement with the American Jewish community also led him to be less inclined to emphasize the Jews' fate. His antipathy for Jewish leaders in the United States and Palestine tempered somewhat his sympathy for persecuted Jews in Europe. Sulzberger's opposition to a Jewish state in Palestine drew the publisher into fierce public fights with American Jewry's top leaders and so forth. And I go on much more extensively than I'm reading to you now. And while Sulzberger was leading this self-censorship movement so that the American people were largely unaware of the Holocaust until about 1944, the extent of the extermination of the Jews, he was busy trying to get his family out of Germany. And this is another reason why Dwight Eisenhower once Germany was conquered, ordered the media to come with him so he could take them to the camps. The very same media that had covered it up. More when I return. Lovin. Folks, many of our nation's oldest colleges were founded to teach students to seek truth, recognize what's beautiful, and hold up what is good. But sadly, many have lost their way. Locked in the grip of political correctness, they no longer allow free and open discourse and instead peddle their moral and cultural relativism. Thankfully, there's Hillsdale College. Since its founding in 1844, Hillsdale has remained true to its original mission to provide sound learning of the kind essential to preserving civil and religious liberty and intelligent piety. And as Hillsdale enters its 175th year, their goal is simple and yet profound 
to help students understand what is noblest and best in yourself and the world. Hillsdale College's liberal arts education and vibrant campus community helps students form a foundation for the rest of their lives, a truly life-defining experience. So if you're looking for a college that prizes learning and values intellectual enthusiasm, where everyone shares a strong sense of meaning and purpose, welcome to Hillsdale College. Please visit hillsdale.edu slash admissions to plan a visit and learn more. That's hillsdale.edu slash admissions. You ready? All right, folks. I just want you to know the extent of media deceit. I mean, it, it is deep and it is wide. And they couldn't even cover the Holocaust. This is, this is a very, very important lesson. And this newspaper still held out as the gold standard. The gold standard? It's even worse. I, I'm not going to read more of it, but it's even worse. They did the same to the Ukrainians. Ten years earlier. When Stalin was wiping them out, 10 million of them. They lied to the American people. And they lied to the American people today. Those cartoons, two of them, that were published in the New York Times, you ought to take a look at them. They're neo-Nazi-like. They're Klansman-like. And they barely, barely were covered all over cable TV, course in newspapers, network TV. They're not going to touch the New York Times. All right, folks, we're going to move along, but I thought this was very, very important to give all of this some perspective. We're not going to do hit and run around here. We're going to take our time. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post in the bowels of a hidden bunker somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building we've once again made contact with our leader Mark Levin Hello everybody Mark Levin here our number 877-381-3811 877-381-3811 now there were two cartoons uh, that the New York Times ran as pointed out at the Daily Wire And you ought to take a look at them. Those cartoons look like they come straight out of the Third Reich. Straight out of the Third Reich. They ran the first cartoon, then they ran the second cartoon. So they apologized for their first cartoon. They really didn't apologize for it. They excused it. And then they ran another one. Another one. As the Daily Wire Hank Berrien says, the New York Times drips with venomous anti-Semitism. As already noted after the uproar following their monstrous Nazi-like cartoon last Thursday that depicted Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as a dog on a leash held by a blind President Donald Trump who is wearing a yarmulke. And by the way, the star David, of course, was on Netanyahu. That incident prompted the Times at first to issue a statement but no apology on Saturday morning. And only after the terrorist shooting at the Poway Synagogue in California later on Saturday did the Times issue another statement with an apology on Sunday. 
But what almost went unnoticed while the Times was stubbornly refusing to apologize was another anti-Semitic cartoon the Times ran in their weekend edition, depicting a sour-faced Netanyahu in sunglasses taking a selfie while holding what looks like a stone tablet with a Star David on it. Unbelievable. And that's not all. That's not all. Here's a piece from Newsbusters. Notice these are all conservative media outlets. These are all conservative media outlets. New York Times chutzpah. Newsbusters. New York Times reporter John Elegon filed an aggrieved defense of Representative Ilian Omar from Kansas City who's been widely accused of anti-Semitism. American Muslims view Omar's controversies in the fallout with unease, is the New York Times headline. The online headline was even more slanted. Unchecked hate toward Representative Ilyan Omar has American Muslims shuddering. Now, Illigan, the New York Times writer, previously went soft on the racist, sexist, conspiracists, vulgar, black Israelites after the D.C. and New York City rabble-rousers made it into the news cycle after the verbal assaults on the Kennedy, uh, excuse me, Kentucky Catholic school teens during the infamous Lincoln Memorial Saga. Ilion piece on Omar for Friday's edition of the New York Times was along the same rough lines of defending the indefensible. Quote, when Maka Ali learned that Representative Ilyan Omar had been elected, she could not get enough of the good news. Someone like her, a black Muslim woman, was going to Washington to represent Americans. But just four months into Ms. Omar's first term, that feeling of celebration has taken a sharp turn. Quote, watching what Congresswoman Omar is going through will have a lot of young black Muslim women wondering if what she's going through will ultimately be worth it, said Ms. Ali, 29, a producer and co-host of the Identity Politics podcast. What? Ms. Omar, 36, the first congresswoman to wear a hijab, has faced intense opposition over her outspoken, controversial positions on Israel and comments about Jews that many felt played in anti-Semitic tropes about money and dual loyalty. While her choice of words has caused some of her own Muslim constituents to describe her as anti-Semitic, many American Muslims across the country are worried that the ongoing criticism of Ms. Omar is being motivated by racism and Islamophobia, and they are concerned about the broader consequences for their communities, including a heightened sense that they are not welcome in the halls of power. This is New York Times. But that momentum could easily be derailed, some say, and the blame for such a setback would lie not just with Ms. Omar's poor choice of words or Mr. Trump's inflammatory rhetoric, but also with Democratic leaders who appear reluctant to embrace the diversity they claim to champion. Hmm. When Ms. Omar first came onto the national scene as a blunt-talking freshman congresswoman from Minnesota, Sultan Hagi, who is a Muslim immigrant from Somalia like Ms. Omar, understood how her comments and delivery could be perceived as hurtful and offensive. Then came what Mr. Hagi saw as unfair charges that Ms. Omar was anti-Semitic and a false insinuation from Mr. Trump that she did not understand the severity of 9-11. Now Mr. Hagi thinks it is not Ms. Omar's politics upsetting people, but her identity. New York Times. 
The writer, Elegant, strove mightily to turn around the controversy over Omar's offensive dismissal of the 9-11 attacks at a CARE fundraiser as an unfair and even dangerous attack on Omar. He wrote, following those remarks, Mr. Trump shared a video on Twitter that featured four words from his Omar speech. Some people did something, quote-unquote, against the backdrop of planes hitting the Twin Towers, suggesting that Ms. Omar did not comprehend the gravity of the attacks. Mr. Trump also told a Minneapolis TV station that Ms. Omar has been very disrespectful to this country. Representative Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, acknowledged the video in a statement that criticized the president for using the painful images of 9-11 for a political attack, but she failed to mention Ms. Omar by name. That led to accusations that the speaker and Democratic leadership were ambivalent about the continual attacks faced by Ms. Omar, who said she had received an increase in threats in the wake of the video. Eventually, Illigan, the New York Times reporter, hinted Omar isn't anti-Semitic, just making justified criticisms. Quote, Although Ms. Omar continues to face political attacks and death threats, she had said she does not plan to slow down, a relief to many of her Muslim supporters and others who feel her criticism of the influence Israel has on Washington is legitimate and justified. As for Ms. Omar's comments on Israel, he writes, Mr. Hagee said he felt Mr. Trump had said much worse and that the president had put Ms. Omar in his crosshairs simply to spread fear and score political points. That's the New York Times. It is truly a disgusting newspaper with a horrible pathology. It truly is. Now, let's take a listen to how the media react to what took place at that synagogue on Saturday. Whose fault is it? Cut four, go. This is an epidemic, and we have a president who will not, who not only will not acknowledge that we have an epidemic of white nationalist terror after New Zealand said just a few people, he's providing the mood music for it. That is the reality we face. See, I think the president needs to at some point look in the mirror and understand that the rhetoric, the words he uses in all of this, inflame this big part of what's going on in America, give permission to the most craziest people in America. And it happens in part because there's a climate set at the top of unbelievable, constant lies and hostility and, and division in this country, not only as policy, but has with his affect. The conspiracy theories cited by these neo-Nazis in Pittsburgh and New Zealand and now outside San Diego, conspiracy theory that Trump never condemned and actually uh, seemed to support. And we don't know if it has any connection to, um, to the politics that's going on, but I mean, it would be a stretch. To, to say that it doesn't. Somebody that's anti-immigrant in California, the anti-immigrant hate and refugees going on in the country, what happened at the Tree of Life, and then you couple that with the president's language, it's a big problem. And remember, Donald Trump just over the last couple of days have been defending what he said in Charlottesville. And it echoed, called back into our memory, right? Something that just happened. That's enough. These are sick, sick people who are lighting fuses everywhere in this country. Lighting fuses everywhere. Notice they didn't bring up the New York Times cartoons. Why is that? Notice they didn't bring up Omar, Talib, or AOC. Why is that? This is sick. Sick. Here's Ben Collins, 
who is with the Anti-Defamation League. And ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand the Anti-Defamation League has been taken over by leftists, Obama administration officials, special assistant to the president, heads the Anti-Defamation League. And I would argue Obama and his administration were the greatest anti-Semites in the White House since FDR. Since FDR. Go ahead. Do these groups have anything to say about President Trump? Yeah, so both this shooter and the Christchurch shooter and the one this in the synagogue in Pittsburgh from Robert Bowers from six months ago to the day of the shooting, by the way, all said, you know, President Trump is not doing enough to stop this scourge of immigrants, the scourge of Muslims and Mexicans. coming. They all, the those two, all said, all three, that they detested Trump. You do not belong at the Anti-Defamation League. You belong at the Anti-American League. And by that I mean not defending American, America. You're anti-American. What you're saying is grotesque. You're a disgrace. You should be writing for the New York Times. Maybe you could replace Maggie Haberman. Go ahead. So while they disavow the president, they don't disavow the policy. They want more violence in, embedded into that policy. There has been this sort of rewriting. It's of amazing to me how the left can take their agenda and then tell you, if you don't support their agenda, then you must be a white nationalist. You must be an anti-Semite, even if you're a Jew, even if you have Jewish grandchildren, a Jewish daughter, a Jewish son-in-law. There's something about you. You must be a Jew hater. You must be a racist. You must be causing all this and so forth and so on. Not Obama and his administration. Not Omar. Not Tlaib. Not Farrakhan. Not the New York Times. Not the media. No. The man who is the greatest defender and supporter of Israel since that state came into being here in the United States. Somehow it's his rhetoric. You're hearing their rhetoric, right, folks? You're hearing their propaganda. Listen to them. Go ahead. By several people, um, several politicians specifically saying that this is... Shut up, you fraud. They had to shut down the ADL. It's now a mouthpiece for the leftists. That's all it is. Propaganda machine. Then there's Joe Scarborough. Why is this truly stupid, vile human being on television? Does he add a single bit of information that is substantive, useful? Has he ever said a profound thing? He sits there and he slobbers. A man who two and a half years ago was a Trump supporter. Now he's not. Now, I want to ask you a question. When you hear this man speak, I want you to tell me if he incites hate. If he has blood on his hands. Cut eight, go. I'm not really confused. I know you're trying to stir up hate and maybe even violence because. This, this is him talking to the president, by the way. You know, Jimmy Stewart had a. You know, Jimmy Stewart had a movie where he was talking to a rabbit. Let's take it from the top. Cut eight. Go. 
I'm not really confused. I know you're trying to stir up hate and maybe even violence because your words, they certainly go on the border an awful lot. But uh, a coup, that's just a lie. You know it's a lie. You know it's irresponsible. You know it's as irresponsible as when you say enemy of the people. That's kind of like when you talked about a Second Amendment solution to stopping Hillary Clinton from appointing federal judges that people didn't like. Second Amendment solution, the killing of. What he's trying to do here, because that's what demagogues do with their propaganda. He's trying to weave together a case that it's the President of the United States who wants people killed. That he wants anti-Semitism, that he wants racism. In past times, Joe Scarborough wouldn't ever be allowed near a studio. He'd be headed for a padded room. But now we have news outlets and news platforms that promote this stuff. That promote this stuff. Here you have Franklin Roosevelt, who conceals the, the Holocaust from the American people for years. They love Franklin Roosevelt. On this very network, they have Al Sharpton. You know his past. They love Al Sharpton. And I could go on and on about the media and Scarborough, MSNBC and CNN, New York Times and Washington Post, NBC, ABC and CBS. It's interesting. They all do say the same thing. The same thing. Go ahead. This is we are so far beyond dog whistles here, Donald. We are so far beyond dog that, that, that's, that's enough. This is a very, very stupid man. Very dangerous man, this Joe Scarborough. He really is. Give him a platform. If there's violence, blood on people's hands, it's people like Scarborough, people like all those phony news people who are in that monologue. It is they who are lighting fuses all over the place. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. for law-abiding parishioners of every faith, synagogues and churches and uh, mosques, wherever. Get carry permits, carry your weapons. Get carry permits and carry your weapons. Don't be bullied by the media on the left and so forth and so on. Don't be bullied by these people. You need to protect yourselves. And uh, that's what will protect you, ultimately. Because these are soft targets. Just like schools are soft targets. Just like sports arenas are soft targets. Just like malls are soft targets. I'm just telling you. I know I'll come under attack. I always come under attack for the things I say that are truthful. And I don't care. That Second Amendment is there. It belongs to you. Now, Kamala Harris basically wants to eliminate it. This guy, Swalwell, said he wants to start removing weapons. These are not only people 
who must not be president because they cannot put their hand on a Bible and swear fidelity to the Constitution because they reject the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment. How can you be president if you reject part of the Bill of Rights? So they're disqualified from the get-go. From the get-go. But do not allow politicians and others to tell you what to think. Because in the end, they're not in the church with you. They're not in the synagogue with you. They're not in the mosque with you. Are they? All they do is yap, 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 yap. And blame Trump. I've decided the most loathsome person on TV, and there are many. Maybe I'll do the Mark Levin Loathsome on TV Awards. What do you think about that, Mr. Producer? Right near the top, if not at the top, has to be Joe Scarborough. Truly. Truly. He is a face for the post office. Principled Patriot. Call in now at 877-381-3811. As you can imagine, I'm becoming the greatest enemy of the media. Talk about enemy of the people with the media. I'm becoming their greatest enemy. And the attacks are picking up. The attacks are picking up. Why? I'll tell you why. Because of uh, unfreedom of the press that's coming out. And so what they're trying to do is soften it up, soften me up before it's released. It's not going to work. I'm like a Doberman. I've got their pant leg in my teeth. And I'm not going to let go. But I need my political infantry, and that's you. So I hope you're going to Amazon.com and go ahead and get your copy. It's 40% off if you pre-order now of Unfreedom of the Press. We've been going through parts of it, certainly not most of it, over the last three weeks or so. And it'll put things in an in, in absolute laser focus for you. Again, not superficially, but you're going to learn things you didn't know before. And then you're going to see the attacks on you, the attacks on this republic, the attacks on our Constitution. Yes, the attacks on freedom of speech and press and the attacks on the president. You'll see where this is coming from. You'll see why it's happening. You'll see the hypocrisy. You'll see a great deal. And interestingly, my book comes out three weeks before Jim Acosta's book. And so they're going to want to push Jim Acosta's book as hard as they can. So we've got a few things going against us, but I have one thing going for me, and that is you, millions of you. Millions of you, people who revere this country, the Declaration and the Constitution, who love your fellow citizens, who work hard to contribute to this country, to raise your family, you embrace faith. You are the founders. You are the progeny of the founders. And so that's what we have going for us. That's what we have going for us, ourselves ourselves and uh, I understand what's going to be coming come May 21 I'm not worried about it in the least because I have you I'm blessed to have you so I hope you'll jump on Amazon.com get your copy of Unfreedom of the Press we're going to use it rather substantially 
I've agreed to do a number of book signings. I've also agreed to do a number of media appearances, and I'll be letting you know about them when the time comes. Now, the book signings, just a reminder. Saturday, if you'll write it down and you're in these communities or, or not too far, Saturday, May 25th, 1 p.m., bookends, Ridgewood, New Jersey. Sunday, these are great little stores. Sunday, May 26th, 1 p.m., book review, Huntington, New York. We may have a few surprise guests with me there, too. Saturday, June 1st, 10 a.m., Barnes & Noble, Tyson's Corner Mall, McLean, Virginia. Then Saturday, June 8th, beginning at 1.30 p.m., the Reagan Library, Simi Valley, California. So that's that. And, uh, and of course, uh, as I say, I will mention the various media appearances uh, that will take place. Now, I want you to listen to... Where did, where did I pull? Oh, yeah. One more Scarborough. And that is uh, just, you have to understand, the guy is nothing substantive though. He's, he's basically an ignoramus on all things. Constitution, economics, the culture, American history. He's a gadfly. He's been bouncing around the media, and then he found his spot as a morning show on a cable network that has no ratings, especially his show. My Sunday show has higher ratings than his primetime morning show. And why? He's a babbling buffoon. That's why. And with all due respect, so is his wife. And the guests he brings on are utterly predictable. And so, in order to try and keep even a a small audience, he has to get more and more crazy ass. He's a crackpot. They all are. It's like a meeting of clowns. The clown union. Which Joe Biden apparently is part of too, by the way. The clown union. So here he is today. Cut nine. Go. Oh, we are so past dog whistles now, Donald. You are just inciting violence. It's just, it's just obvious. And that speech... You can see where he is truly mentally unhinged. The Scarborough. <laughs> Mentally unhinged. Go ahead. It was every bit as obvious as those, quote, Second Amendment solutions that you talked about and the killing of Hillary Clinton to stop her from ever being. Nobody able to... talked about killing Hillary, killing Hillary Clinton, you delusional buffoon. Delusional buffoon. Go ahead. Federal judges. And yes, we called it out then. I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. Nobody read it, moron. The fact that you wrote it is amazing. You could barely read it, I'm sure. Go ahead. Horrific and how disqualifying it was. We're calling it out now. You are unfit to be president of the United States. Listen to this. Listen to this guy. Nobody will call him out in the mainstream media because they agree with him. They like him. He's a suck-up. In his wildest dreams, he didn't think he'd be making this kind of money and be in the media. In his wildest dream, he was a, a, a failed loser backbencher congressman. Then he was a failed loser backbencher radio host. And now he's a failed loser MSNBC host who gets paid millions of dollars. 
And still he has that Woody the Woodpecker haircut. Anyway, go ahead. But you can do something about that. You can call out white nationalism. White nationalism. I thought that's what you stood for, Scarborough. Apparently the white nationalists, the neo-Nazis, and the Klans hate Donald Trump. Tell me, Scarborough, how many Jewish grandchildren do you have? How many Jewish children do you have? Tell me, what have you ever done for the state of Israel? What have you ever done for the Jewish people? So why do you keep referring to the president as a white nationalist? How do we know you're not a white nationalist? We can throw terms around. Scarborough has called the president Hitler before. And yet those, 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 those subhumans who are attracted to Hitler and white nationalism, they keep writing stuff trashing the president of the United States. But Scarborough can't read. His reading comprehension is very, very low. So the very people who trash the president because of his support of Jews and his Jews and his family and his support of Israel, when there's an attack like this, Scarborough uses the occasion to attack the president of the United States. He is a slip and fall television host. He is he's the lo- he's the new Michael Avenatti. I won't tell you who the Stormy Daniels is on that uh, dais, but he's the new Michael Avenatti. That's what he is. Although Avenatti's smarter than he is, actually. What's the first thing you do when you get into a new car? You adjust the seat, right? Most cars only allow you to move the seat front or back. But if it's a luxury car, you can adjust your lower back or lumbar support. Most of us spend more time in our office chairs than we do in our cars. How many adjustments can you make to your office chair? Now, this is a brilliant point. If it's any fewer than 10 customized ergonomic adjustments, then you don't have an X chair. Now, I can adjust my X chair to fit my body perfectly. And thanks to the X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL, my back gets the perfect level of support. DVL is the key to ideal posture, comfort, and productivity. And the only, the only company that has it is our friends at X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairlevin.com. That's xchairlevin.com. Or maybe you're stuck in the car or you'd like to make calls. 1-844-4X-Chair. That's our toll-free line. 1-844-4X-Chair. Extra comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. You can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. I'm sitting on my X-Chair now, as I always do. I love this chair. Go to XChairLevin.com, XChairLevin.com, or call 844-4X-Chair. And if you use code X-Wheels, you'll receive a free set of the new sleek X-Wheels with your chair. That's xchairlevin.com. Howard, Fort Lee, New Jersey, the great WABC. Go. Yes, listening to you, Mark, reminded me of the, I think it was a 1947 production of The Gentleman's Agreement uh, with Gregory Peck. I've seen it many, many times. I assume it's probably on Turner Classic Movies. It was about, basically, uh, an executive editor of a magazine in New York who was... uh, who was so disgusted with anti-Semitism that he hired a reporter 
to really write a re- write a, a column, many many columns, on the effects of anti-Semitism on the Jewish community. And what's interesting about this movie, Gregory Peck, he he pretended he made believe that he was Jewish in order to cover the story correctly. And you get a what what he Moore's heart was the uh, was the writer, if I remember. And Moore's heart was at the time, the mid forties. Just a superb uh, New York writer of plays. His wife was was Kitty Carlisle, who was a oh, very right. famous actor, mm. very famous actress. And this movie had John Garfield in it. I mean, it, it was it's so exceptional, portraying the effects of of anti-Semitism, of course, after the Second World War in terms of the Nazi Holocaust, and it portrayed. It betrayed the, the the way which Jews had to change their names in order to get jobs. And indeed, in this movie, his secretary, who was Jewish, changed her name to get a job at the very magazine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to check that out, my friend. We're out of time now. I'm gonna have to check that out. Thank you for uh, learning us to that, Howard. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. have a moment, I want you all to go to BrickHouseLevin.com, BrickHouseLevin.com. Just go and click on the Buy Now Now button so you can read the reviews, over 1,200 five-star reviews. And I might add, but this one caught my attention from Stephen Denver. I'm upset with Mark Levin because he's got me hooked on Field of Greens. What a great product. Thank you, BrickHouse, for your amazing product and great customer service. I'm a monthly subscriber and won't live without it. Now, you're welcome, Steve. And subscribing is smart. You save a lot of money that way. Field of Greens is made with real USDA organic fruits and vegetables, folks. It uh, helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. This is the easiest way to live a healthier life. Plus, they offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, BrickHouse, L-E-V-I-N.com, one word, or call their toll-free number. Ready? It's brand new, just for you. 833-RING-B-H-N. 833-RING, like R-I-N-G-B-H-N. 833-RING-B-H-N. Get 15% off your first order with the promo code LEVIN. Just always call these places or write in LEVIN, 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 L-E-V-I-N. It always works to your benefit. That's BrickHouseLevin.com or call 833-RING-BHN, promo code LEVIN, promo code LEVIN. Now, remember, 100% USDA organic, a natural source of vitamins and minerals. It will help boost your immunity. It includes organic strawberry, raspberry, blueberry, cranberry, pomegranate for antioxidant strength. It helps boost your metabolism with organic ginger and green tea. Field of Greens, ladies and gentlemen, it really is tops. BrickHouseLevin.com or 833-RING-BHN. You've got nothing to lose. Give it a shot. Man, oh, man, Ashevitz, we got a lot more to cover here. That's a fact. Look at this. From our friends at the Federalist, Joy Pullman, U.S. history textbook implies Christians are bigots, Reagans are racists. Between Hollywood 
academia, and the media. They have this culture by the throat, the left, don't they? They have the culture by the throat. And yet there's still tens of millions of us who get it. There's still tens of millions of us who reject what it is that they're burping up. And that's very, very important. Very, very important. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk more about this next hour, of course. We have uh, Jerry Nadler, who is a constitutional illiterate and a Soviet-style political menace, who's now threatened to subpoena the Attorney General. Because, you see, Jerry Nadler wants to do things a little differently. Members of his committee should not be alone in their ability to question the Attorney General. Committee staff should be able to question the Attorney General as well. What? Oh, yes. Examine him, cross-examine him like he's some kind of a defendant in a criminal trial. He's supposed to go to this hearing on Thursday. The Attorney General says, no, I'm not, we're not doing that game. You people want to ask questions in your oversight capacity? That's fine. But you don't get to treat me like some common thug. Although they like to treat their common thugs with much respect. And they even elect them to office, as a matter of fact. But you get the point. Now, there is no debate. I don't care who they put on TV, on what cable channel. I don't care if they were judges in New Jersey or California. I don't care if they're former federal prosecutors in the Southern District or in the Eastern District or this. I don't care. When it comes to this issue of obstruction of justice, the president did not commit obstruction of justice. That's a fact. Well, but he plotted to. No, he didn't. Well, McGahn said that he told him to fire Mueller. And he, first of all, even if he fired Mueller, that doesn't mean it's obstruction of justice either. He didn't stop. If he had fired Mueller, it wouldn't have stopped the investigation on its own. If you want to stop the investigation, you stop the investigation. But he didn't fire Mueller. And he didn't need McGahn to fire Mueller either. He has his own telephone. He could have even done it via Twitter. Ooh, yes. He doesn't have to go through his White House counsel. Meanwhile, Congress and these so-called legal analysts wouldn't even know about it if the President of the United States didn't allow uh, McGahn 30 hours with the prosecutors. And I said this on Sunday night's Life, Liberty, and Levin to my good friend Ken Cuccinelli. Wasn't he great, by the way? Former Attorney General of New York, of New York, of, uh, of Virginia. Terrific guy. And I've said it to you. There's two paragraphs, ladies and gentlemen, less than a page that references McGahn's testimony. Since he didn't give the testimony in a grand jury, all of it could have been released by Mueller. None of it's covered by the 6E exemption, secrecy. Why did they only put 30 seconds or so of what, Mueller, of what McGahn said in the report? What happened the other 29 hours, 59 minutes, and 30 seconds? There's at least got to be a transcript, even if there's not a video. There has to be a transcript of it. We know that because they actually quoted part of it. But whenever you do a deposition or something, uh, you have a transcript. A court reporter or somebody else. The case of an investigation. So what did he say in all the rest of it? And why am I the only one who's curious about this? 
Remember, the prosecutor would have put that which hurts the president most in that volume, too. Lots more when we return. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811-877-381-3811. Ever hear, is it Olivier Knox, Mr. Producer? Oliver Knox? Olivier Knox? Olivier. Oh. Olivier Knox, the White House Correspondents Association president. Olivier Knox, ladies and gentlemen. I have no idea who the hell that guy is. Does anybody raise your hand? No, of course you don't. At the Correspondents' Dinner on Saturday, anybody watch it on TV? I certainly didn't. Olivier Knox, hat tip newsbusters, they watch everything. Let's hear what he had to say. Go. I still separate my career into the period before February of 2017 and what came afterwards. Uh-oh. And that's because February 2017 is when the President of the United States called us the enemies of the people. A few days later, I was driving my then 11 year old. Slow down. He called us the enemies of the people. Now, this is interesting. They call him Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini. They call him a white nationalist, a racist, an anti-Semite, anything he can think of. You got stupid, repulsive Joe Scarborough out there saying that he has blood on his hands and all these sorts of things. And he says, you know what? To this media outlet or this journalist, you're the enemy of the people. Oh, my God. We've never been treated this way before. Again, when you get unfreedom of the press, you're going to see that they've been treated very, very differently in the past, very badly, but not by this president. The truth shall set you free. That's what we're about here. And so with a period of February 20th, this is afterwards. That's how I judge things, because then we were called the enemies of the people. Go ahead probably soccer practice when he burst into tears and asked me, is Donald Trump going to put you in prison? At the no, end no, of no, family- no, no, no. He's not Barack Obama. Barack Obama might put you in prison. Yeah. There was a special counsel during the George W. Bush administration who actually put a reporter in prison. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt... Woodrow Wilson, great progressives, they actually put some people in prison. Donald Trump hasn't put anybody in prison. So what, you should have told your 11-year-old, but you're some kind of schmo. You're a lousy father. May I say that? It's true. You're a joke. What you say to your 11-year-old is, son, of course that's not going to happen. Now, that may have happened under certain Democrat administrations, but it's not going to happen under this one. There's no evidence whatsoever that that'll happen under this administration. But you start a partisan puke. May I call you that? You're such a partisan puke that you, uh, you say what you do. Go ahead. 
Mexico, he mused that if the president tried to keep me out of the country, quote, at least Uncle Josh is a good lawyer and he'll get you home. Well, that's great. So now we're hearing the uh, the 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 concerns of an 11 year old, no doubt informed by his idiot father. Because an 11 year old wouldn't come up with this stuff on his or her own. So no doubt informed by his idiot father. At the end of a family trip to Mexico, he mused that if the president tried to keep me out of the country, at least Uncle Josh is a good lawyer, and he'll get you home. Boy, that Uncle Josh must be a really good lawyer then. So then, this is, this is what we call, this is what I call an unfreedom of the press, thanks to uh, Professor Bornston, a pseudo-event. This is a nothing issue. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. And yet now look at this. It's it's newsworthy because some jerk stands up in front of a thousand other jerks and spews this stupidity. Oh, my gosh. An 11-year-old said that? Reminds me of Jimmy Carter during a debate with Reagan. Says his daughter Amy, who I think was 11 or something. What was her biggest concern? Uh, Nuclear war? What? Yeah, yeah, nuclear war. Jimmy Carter sounded like Michael Jackson. You might remember that or vice versa. Very much so. All right, we've got more. Now, we don't have Olivier. Olivier, may I give you some friendly advice? Don't, uh, don't exploit your son. Don't exploit your son. Have some class, but it's too late. You did exploit your son, and you don't have any class. Now we have, uh, where was I looking before, guys? I'm trying to find it. Let's see. Here. Oh, Glenn Kessler. At the Washington Compost. He's a fact checker. That's pretty funny. They say he's a fact checker for the Washington Post. Now, that's kind of an odd turn of a word, turn of a phrase. He's not fact checking the Washington Post, is he? No. He's fact checking other people, specifically the president. This president. Did they have a fact checker for Barack Obama and the four billion times he lied about health care and every aspect of it? No. No fact checker then. But I want you to listen to this idiot, and he really is an idiot. Cut 13, go. The president uh, continues to say false or misleading. First of all, listen to this. The president, who does he sound like? Buddy Hackett. It sounds like Buddy Hackett. Some of you are too young. Hey, yeah, uh, Buddy Hackett here. Start at the top, please. Cut 13. Uh, Glenn Kessler, Buddy Hackett, go. The president uh, continues to say false or misleading statements at an unbelievable pace. He hit 5,000 in September. 5,000? False or misleading statements. 5,000 by September, ladies and gentlemen, says uh, Glenn Kessler, Buddy Hackett. Not 1,207, not 4,008, 5,000 right on the button. Go ahead. Now, here it is seven months later, and uh, he's now hit 10,000. 10,000. Wow. He's doubled. Right on the number. 10,000. It's like the world's going to end from uh, climate change in 10 years. 10 years. You said that eight months ago. So it should be, you know, nine years and four months. No, 10 years. It's like illegal aliens. We've had 11 million illegal aliens for 10 years. Now, a million a year come across the border. 1.2 million, maybe there. 11 million, 11 million. 10 years, 10 years. 10,000 lies. Imagine that. Go ahead. Average of about 23 false or misleading claims a day in the last seven months. Really? I, I think you're full of what we call BS. 
But let's go. We have this this guy I'd seen. His name is Berman. They don't come any dumber than this guy. Well, Scarborough, but you get the point. Go ahead. Broke down one three-day period, basically the 25th, the 26th, and 27th. All right, stop. Let's, 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 you broke down one three-day period. Yes, you did. Go ahead. We're going to throw this up on the screen for you if we can here because it Oh, shows- we have graphics because we don't know what the number 10,000 looks like or their audience doesn't. I mean, after all, it's CNN. What kind of a dope watches CNN day in and day out? Truly. I mean, they make us all watch it at the airports. But what kind of a dope watches CNN voluntarily? Go ahead. An unbelievable number of them. 45 uh, false claims in the Hannity interview. Eight in a press gaggle. 24 in the NRA speech. The campaign rally. Uh, there's a lot going wow. on Wow. Well, what are they? What are all these lies? Can you tell us? Well, I... There's a lot here. Uh, We got the stat. Look, I got graphics. Graphics don't lie. Uh, Go ahead. Right. And that's the. the, So it was 171 claims in three days. And Ah, uh, shut up, you idiot. Tell me, how many lies out of the media about collusion? Buddy Hackett, how many? Well, I I I don't know. How many in three days? I don't know. How many in seven months? I don't know. I know. You know what they are, Miss? 112,307. Can you believe that, folks? Write that down. Then you have your own graphics. It's unbelievable how often the media have lied. 112,307 times they've lied in the last seven months. It's incredible. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Online by Kevin Williamson, who I like very much. Now, he's not exactly a fan of the president. I think I could honestly say that's putting it mildly, but he has an excellent piece there. He says, look, the Mueller investigation was supposed to be a legal process concerned with crimes. Investigators identify no crimes to charge, and so it has naturally become something else. No longer a theory about criminal conspiracy, only an irritable mood. An ordeal that had been conducted under the procedures of law in accordance with legal criteria is now an ordeal that is being conducted under the procedures of politics in accordance with political criteria, or if you prefer, with moral criteria related to Donald Trump's character. For those who want to see President Trump impeached and think of impeachment as a fundamentally political process, in spite of its mock trial aspect, that's just fine. They'll take their pound of flesh however it, ha- however it has. The problem with this point of view is that the question of Donald Trump's personal fitness for office already has been adjudicated as a political matter. That is, what happened in the 2016 presidential campaign. Many critics, myself included, argued that Trump was unfit for office, both morally and intellectually. We made our arguments. The voters consulted with our con- their own consciences. And weighing these things, however it is that voters weigh them, chose Trump. There wasn't some occult intermediary step in there. That's how things go in politics. The people behave just as if they had minds of their own. And sometimes they get to have their own way. 
In terms of Donald Trump's character and habits, there's practically nothing in the Mueller report or in the public record since 2016 that voters did not already know when they elected him. And that is really the fundamental argument against impeaching President Trump. The political judgment called for in an impeachment at this point, and in this context, properly ought to be understood as beside the point. If we take seriously the democratic assumption that the judgment of the people rendered in the election is sovereign. There isn't some shocking new thing, and of course some Democrats have been talking impeachment since before Trump was even sworn in. The Democrats do not propose to impeach Donald Trump for high crimes and misdemeanors, but simply for being Donald Trump. One may sympathize with that, but Donald Trump is the man the voters chose. And that goes to the real issue here. The Democrats cannot accept that they lost an election to Donald Trump. One sympathizes with that, too, he writes. But that is what actually happened for several reasons. Trump focused on two issues, immigration and trade, that speak to a substantial bipartisan plurality with nationalistic and protectionist protectionistic impulses rarely taken seriously by mainstream figures in either party. His opponent ran an inept campaign and has been questing after power for so long that both she and voters are exhausted by it. The elites and Washingtonians against whom Trump and company inveigh were judged, not without some reason, to merit a trip to the woodshed. The so-called war on terror and the financial crisis of 08-09 have destabilized formerly sturdy political coalitions, and of course, it was Republicans' turn. Which is to say... The Democrats' talk of impeachment is partly about 2020, but it's mainly about 2016 and their adolescent psychic need to believe that the presidential election that brought Donald Trump to the White House was illegitimate rather than an opportunity they simply blew. The theory that the election was thrown by Russian trolls posting dank memes on Twitter is hard to take seriously. If we had a list of every voter whose mind was changed in 2016 by an anonymous social media account with a acrylic bio, then disenfranchising those voters would be a good start on improving things for 2020. Alas and alack, we don't do that sort of thing. But the argument that bot execute, executed shenanigans nullified democracy in 2016 amounts to the Democrats protesting, quote, these trolls robbed us of the support of our natural base, which is morons. There's no quality control in social media and less quality control in ordinary news media than there used to be. Lies, distortion, exaggerations, and pure inventions are going to be out there in the intellectual marketplace, whether they originate in Moscow or in Brooklyn. That's a real problem, but it doesn't invalidate the outcome of the 2016 election. There are many reasons to oppose an impeachment at this time. One is that no one has made a very persuasive case for one. All the Democrats' arguments up to this point having been transparently pretextual. Another is that the Republican majority in the Senate all but ensures that the process will be purely symbolic and exercising chaos for pleasure's sake. A third is that it normalizes the invocation of a procedure that should be reserved for extraordinary serious uh, circumstances in the service of ordinary short-term partisan interests. For comparison, consider there was no by. Uh, there was no serious impeachment talk. You know, my problem is I'm reading this off my iPhone because my computer's out, but I'm doing my best. <clears throat> For comparison, consider there was no serious impeachment talk when Barack Obama authorized the assassination of U.S. citizens without so much as a buy your leave from Congress. 
or when he took executive actions that he himself had described as unconstitutional only months before. That suggests a pretty high standard. And if I think that guy is a fink ends up being a common rationale for impeachment, then you better make your peace with anarchy because Washington's going to be a ghost town. But the most important reason for forbearance is that a political judgment already has been rendered on Donald Trump's character. And if you don't like how that came out, there's another chance right around the corner. So there's a never Trumper. And I think that's a very good piece by him, by Kevin. This whole thing, this whole impeachment thing is a fraud and a joke. And there's there's many reasons to say that. But one of the main reasons is it's being led by Gerald Nadler, who's a fraud and a joke. Art, Springfield, New Jersey, the great WABC. Go. Hello. <clears throat> Hello. Yeah, go right ahead. Hi. Yeah, we were talking about anti-Semitism and the emergence of it during our, the late 30s into World War II and how it, how it came about. You know, and, and how it was not recognized. In well, America. I don't think any of us said it came about then. It's been around a lot longer than then. Well, I, 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 I agree. But now we get into the present situation. Um, you have an Omar. You have uh, Ocasio. You have the Pelosi that supports. You have Talib. Yeah. And now everything is out in front. We all see it. This is no longer subliminal. It's nothing. It's not. So why doesn't the Anti-Defamation League point its finger at the Democrat Party, which has a high tolerance level for this stuff? Well, in the same manner, why there's so many Jews that vote for the Democrats that are supporting all this anti-Semitism? Well, you're right, because many of them you won't find a lot of Orthodox Jews, for instance, uh, who will wind up uh, voting against Trump or voting for the Democrats. You'll find a lot of people, you know, it, it's like any other religion. You have people who will go to church, go to synagogue, go to their mosque and so forth. And it's almost a formality. It's like the hamster on the hamster wheel. That's just, just what they do. But it's an inch deep. It's an inch deep. They're leftists before everything else. This is why leftists are so effective. Because it's, it's liberalism or leftism that comes first. Everything else is secondary. The government replaces God. That's the truth. Norman Podhortz wrote a great book on this once. All right, my friend, we'll be right back. Mark Levin, a proud conservative. No ifs, ands, or buts. Call in at 877-381-3811. Well, you know, I like to acquire things of history. Then I tend to give them away. But I've acquired something here that just fascinates the hell out of me. I acquired it and then I told my wife. (laughs) Well, what can I tell you? You know, Thomas Paine's two most famous pamphlets, Common Sense, and the earlier one, The American Crisis. In The American Crisis, um, I think it was, it first appeared in uh, December 1776. And um, there aren't that many copies left, certainly not in private hands that I'm aware of. 
It was first published as part of the Philadelphia Journal on December 19, 1776. And then four days later, it was printed in uh, pamphlet form. And it was circulating throughout the major cities. And um, the New York Constitutional Convention would later order about a thousand copies of it. But it's on this very thin, I don't even know if you'd call it parchment, but it's very fragile. And so I acquired one. I think there's five of these left. There's different versions, but this is among the original pamphlets. So I do, I do fantasize a little bit about, well, who would I give this to if I gave it to anybody? And I'm not giving it to anybody yet, I can tell you that. And if I do, <clears throat> I'll be given to the right people for the right reason. But that's uh, very important to the country. It's very important to me. And it's right in front of me. Just wanted you to know. These things pass through my hands. I'm just, I just, I, I just, it just is incredible to me. Our history. I so adore this country like you do, as my parents did. And these documents, these great men, these great patriots who really did put their lives on the line. And um, the American crisis was a crucially important pamphlet. As was common sense. So, here it is. And um, maybe one day I will donate it. Maybe one day I won't. But at least for now, since I just acquired it, I won't. As you know, I used to have a, uh, the, the compilation of the Federalist Papers. And uh, there were about 500 of those books, those compilations that were ordered by Alexander Hamilton... They were printed in Philadelphia at significant expense back then. Uh, and Hamilton needed them because they were losing New York in the uh, constitutional debate over ratification. They were losing in New York, but they were also losing in Virginia. So 50 copies were sent to Virginia. Now, obviously, nobody knows what happened to all of them. So one of the finest copies to exist, I acquired that several years ago. And I was writing uh, one book and writing another book, and it was sitting next to my laptop, and it's in these beautiful uh, cases, I guess you would call it, that are made more recently to protect them. And every now and then I would open, and then I said to myself, I've had this for a couple of years. It sits next to my laptop. It's not what I want to do with it. I mean, I want to have it, but there's something wrong with me just having it next to my laptop. Do you know what I mean, Mr. Producer? That, that, that I have it, but nobody else can see it. It's too damn important. So that's on display now and forever at Hillsdale College, their Constitution Center on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C. I was able to acquire a copy of... Uh, and when I'm in a position to do it, I do it. I can't always do it. These are expensive items. I acquired a copy of uh, George Washington's last lease to Mount Vernon. 
His aunt would eventually pass away, and he acquired the property. He inherited it. But it was the last lease, and it was all in his handwriting. And it had been in his desk at Mount Vernon, and somehow, you know, it it gets sold, and then family members pass it on. So I acquired that. And I would look at it from time to time, very carefully, obviously. It's behind plastic. I said, you know what? This belongs to Mount Vernon. So I called them one day and I said, you know, I want to give you this. And they were so thankful. Then there's uh, one more. You know what a big fan I am of Dr. Warren, who was really the true first major revolutionary. And he was killed at Breeds Hill. Bunker Hill is what most of you are familiar with. Uh, as they ran out of gunpowder. And here is a letter written both sides of a piece of parchment begging the uh, New York Assembly for gunpowder because they knew they would run out and they were up against the Redcoats in a big way and they'd push down one wave of Redcoats, push back, they pushed back another wave of Redcoats and then they ran out of gunpowder. And he was killed, shot between the eyes at close range because they wanted to take out Warren. And that letter was signed by three men, including Joseph Warren. And I had that for a little while, and I said, who am I going to give this to? So who would appreciate this? I would give it to the National Archives. I mean, they got all, tons of stuff. Who would I give it to that would be? So I gave it also to Hillsdale College, and that's also on display in their Constitution Center in Washington. This is also very, very special the American Crisis Pamphlet. Very, very special. What do you think about it? How these things lasted so long. I mean, because, you know, you get busy back then, all other things happen, you don't realize that these things are going to be as famous or as important as they are. You do in the moment, but you don't know, you're not thinking about, you know, hundreds of years from now. So, I'm very proud to have this and, uh, Keep it for a while and see see what happens. But in the end, I suspect I'll give it to the right people. But I don't know. I don't know. This is very, very important. So we'll see. All right. Oh, I want to tell you about Simply Safe. You know what's annoying? Break-ins are annoying. And you want to know why they're annoying? Well, I mean, obviously, you don't want people to break in. But the fact of when you hear about them. It's because, in many cases, it doesn't have to happen. You can deter criminals. If they know that you have a very solid alarm system to protect you and your family, they're not going to try and knock off your house. If they do, it'll be a rarity. I mean, these are evil people, but they're not stupid. They're looking around for opportunities. Now, the best system is Simply Safe. I've had other systems. There's no better system. There really isn't, and I'll tell you why. It's wireless. You can set it up yourself. You can have as many sensors as you want. It's, in so many ways, it's, it's fail-safe. Like I said, there's no wires to cut. They can try and, uh, and destroy the pad itself, but it continues to work. Your Wi-Fi goes out. It continues to work. 
continues to work. It's like uh, it just goes on and on and on. And they have some of the fastest response times in the industry, ready to send help 24-7 when there's an emergency. Maybe it's no surprise. Simply Safe is the top choice security system of CNET, PC Mag, and more than 3 million Americans like us, my family. I want you to go ahead and get it. They even have a 60-day money-back guarantee. Go to simplysafemark.com so you get the guarantees and the discounts. Simplysafemark.com, and there you'll learn more about Simply Safe. Order today, you'll get free shipping, free shipping on your system, as well as the 60-day money-back guarantee I'm talking about. 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafemark.com, simplysafemark.com. Ed, Green Bay, Wisconsin, the great WTAQ. Go. Good evening, Mark. Um, I've got a constitutional question for you. Um, the Democrats seem to be hanging their hat on um, now they're going for obstruction. And a big linchpin of that is uh, Trump allegedly told Don McGahn to fire Bob Mueller. Um, Don McGahn does not have the constitutional authority to fire Bob Mueller. It would have to be the Department of Justice. No, well, not, but the president does, and he can tell somebody to do that, I would think. Why I not? mean, McGahn could draft a letter for the president, but uh, could could Don McGahn... Yeah, I think McGahn could. I think the president could say, Don McGahn, go tell him he's fired. Okay, okay, I... But the point is, the point is, the president didn't fire him. The president could have done whatever he wanted to do, uh, political ramifications aside. Uh, he could have called Mueller directly. He could have his White House counsel or whatever. The fact that Mueller didn't do it, the president says that discussion never happened, but the fact that Mueller didn't do it, so what? The president could have done it on his own, but he didn't. This is all BS. The whole thing is BS. So we're left with... What if this one did it? What if this one didn't say it? We actually have people who've been judges and prosecutors on TV saying this is clearly obstruction. Anybody else would have been charged. Are you kidding me? 30 hours uh, of interview, not in front of a grand jury. There's nothing in volume two. That's in volume two. There's nothing in there that gives the counterposition. The president and his lawyers didn't even have a t the opportunity to give a counterposition. We're relying solely on what the prosecutors say after 30 hours, and I'm extremely suspicious of it since it's only two paragraphs. You put only two paragraphs in your hit job, volume two report, after talking to the White House counsel for 30 hours. I guarantee you if they ever release the transcript uh, that you'll see that they went at McGahn, and I've said this multiple times now, many times in different ways with different types of drama to try and get him to pin the tail on the president. And they failed. All right, Ed, I appreciate it. Are you a cheesehead, Ed? Yes, I am. Well, I'm sorry. I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> Thank you, sir. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Nancy Pelosi, senior health policy advisor, thinks he has the solution for the high cost of prescription drugs. It's called binding arbitration. 
Sounds great, right? Sounds great. Don't be fooled. Binding arbitration is simply the leftist price controls that I've been warning you about. Third-party arbitration panel members would be hand-picked to settle pricing disputes if government determines a drug to be too expensive. Worse, once established, Democrats will likely demand prices be set for all drugs. And they will want to limit access to drugs in order to control costs following the European socialist model. You know, it's deadly. Price controls are deadly. There are over 4,000 drugs currently being developed in the United States. 4,000. Each successful drug will take 10 to 15 years and $2.6 billion to develop to the end. People don't realize this. If implemented, binding arbitration would wipe out the investments necessary for medical innovations needed to find cures and treatments for the 60% of Americans are now living and suffering with a chronic condition. Binding arbitration is a rigged game where bureaucrats always win and the patient always loses. Get the facts before it's too late. Go to truehealthcarefacts.com, truehealthcarefacts.com, truehealthcarefacts.com. I want you to listen to this in the few minutes we have left. It's Anderson Cooper on CNN. Just a lousy, low, well, cut 17, go. This morning on Varney and Company, a show on Fox Business Network, Lara Trump was, of course, appearing because, you know, that's what she does, and praising the Trump administration's decision to make it more difficult for people fleeing domestic violence or gang violence in Central America to ask for asylum here in America. Oh, she also doesn't like all those Syrian people who fled the war and ended up in Germany. And she expressed her dislike and her concern in a way that proves, once again, you don't have to be born into the Trump family to share the president's remarkable grasp of world history. That videotape reminds me of what happened in Europe when there was a march across Europe by a million people who wanted to get into Western Europe. Angela Merkel let them in, open borders. And it was was the downfall of of Germany. It It was one of the worst things that ever happened to Germany. This president knows that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. The downfall of Germany. By, by the way, the- by the way, Anderson Cooper is supposed to be a journalist, just so you know. But listen to him. Go ahead. First things that ever happened to Germany. So says Lara Trump. She Senior meant Trump- recently. Come on, you fool. You jackass. You worried about that? You ought to go back to the New York Times. But no, no, you're going to trash Lara Trump. Just trash every Trump, anybody related with Trump, anyone associated to Trump. It's just, it's just the CNN is an absolute useless platform. It's pathetic. Go ahead. Advisor. Now, nah, you know what? President. Don't go ahead. Shut up, you idiot. John, Nashville, Tennessee. Mark Levinap, go. Great pleasure talking to you, Mark. Uh, you. Got a question for you. It seems like there's an unprecedented amount of Democrats running for office this year who are serving in office, and it seems like they're using our government as a virtual platform. Do you think there's something insidious about this or wrong in any way? Well, politicians always try to move up. What bothers me related to insidious and using our tax dollars is what's going on on these committees in the House of Representatives. They're not free to use your tax dollars and my tax dollars, which we break our asses to pay. They're not free to take that money to do opposition research, 
to uh, to try and do these kamikaze moves on the president and the attorney general and all the rest of it. They are abusing their power. They are rogue. There is no constitutional basis for what they are. Excuse me, what they are trying to do. And uh, even if you say, even if you make a legitimate argument, there's separation of powers and we're going to litigate this in the courts. They say, oh, there's another example of obstruction. So I think we have a big problem in that respect. I agree. Thank you so much for answering the question. All right, my friend. Thank you. Nashville, Tennessee is a beautiful town with great restaurants, great music. And you know what? The town is, um, what am I trying to say? People are moving there in droves. That's what I'm trying to say. Housing market is hot. And they have no income tax in Tennessee. Did you know that? No income tax. You know, in three, four, five years, I have to convince my wife. I got to get out of here. This Virginia. I got to get out of here. I love Virginia. But I got to go to a no-tax state. Got to go to a no-tax state. I'm tired of paying these people. I'm just sick of it. And you look at some of these states like Florida, you know, the great governor there, DeSantis, and he is a great governor. You know, he barely gets in. People, they move into Florida. I don't want to pay taxes. They come out of these blue states, and they vote like a bunch of jerks. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel, and all you heroes out there. Please go to Amazon.com right now. Get your pre-order copy of Unfreedom of the Press. See you tomorrow. God bless.